0: Now, brothers and sisters, let's take out our Bibles together. And if you will, this morning, go with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 11. Matthew, chapter 11, today. We'll start in verse 28. Matthew 11, verse 28. Now last week we looked at the devotion that Christ demands, and we said last week that the sermon last week and the sermon this week kind of go together, two sides of the same coin if you will, and we saw last week that it will cost us everything to follow Jesus. If you want to follow Jesus, it's going to cost you everything you have. It is no easy thing to be a disciple of Jesus Now, after last week, perhaps some of us came away from that feeling discouraged or overburdened. But that is only part of the message of the gospel. Christianity is full of paradoxes. It's full of them. There's lots of paradoxes in Christianity and in in the Bible. Pairs of seemingly opposite truths that are both true, that you have to hold both at the same time. And without one or the other, we fall into an unbiblical way of thinking. There's lots of paradoxes in Christianity. This is one of those paradoxes. Because on the one hand, following Jesus will cost you everything. It will be hard. It takes complete devotion. But on the other hand, if you feel like you don't have what it takes, if you feel like you're not good enough, if you feel like you're already tired and weary, then Jesus has something for you this morning. That's exactly where Jesus wants to meet you. So let's read our text today. Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 28, where Jesus says, "'Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, "'and I will give you rest.'" Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is one of the heavyweight passages in all of the Bible when it comes to encouraging our hearts And I want us just to spend some extended time looking at it, meditating on it, worshiping over it this morning. Specifically, as I guide you through this, I want to ask three questions of our text. Number one, what kind of rest does Jesus give? Number two, what kind of yoke does Jesus place on us? And number three, what kind of heart does Jesus have? We'll look at those in turn. So first, let's ask, what kind of rest does Jesus give? He talks about giving us rest here, but what kind of rest is it? What kind of rest is he talking about in the passage? Well, let's ask the first question we should always ask when we have a question about a text. What clues does the text itself give us? What clues do we find in the text itself about what this rest really is? Well, number one, we see in our text that this is a rest, whatever it is, it's a rest that only Jesus can give. Whatever it might be, whatever definition we end up landing on, it's something only Jesus can give. We know that from the way He speaks. He says, come to me, and I will give you this rest. You can't get this rest anywhere else. You have to come to Jesus. No matter what we say about the rest, we know right off the bat It's something that only Jesus has. It's something that you can only get if you go to him. Second from our text, we see a second clue here, though, that it's a rest for your soul. It's a rest for your soul. Do you see that at the end of verse 29? He says you will find rest for your souls, right? And so this is not a physical bodily rest. It's a soul rest. Do you know what it feels like to be unrestful in your soul, to have an unrest of your soul? Do you know what that feels like? I would be willing to bet that you do. I'd be willing to bet most of us, probably all of us in here, know what it feels like to have an unrest of our soul. Our soul is not at rest. Even if our body is, even if our life seems to be comfortable, our soul is not at rest. Have you ever experienced this? Many of us know what this feels like. Some of us, some of us used to be there. Some of us used to live there. That used to be our address, right? Some of us used to live there, and yet we have found this rest that Jesus talks about because we've come to Jesus, And when you come to Jesus, you find this rest. So some of you know what this rest feels like. Some of you know what unrest used to feel like, and you've found this rest. Yes, of course, there are periods of time in our lives after we come to Christ where we still feel an unrest of our soul. But we know that that used to be us, and it's no longer us anymore. We've found this rest that Jesus talks about. Some of us have found it. But there are others here today, there are others perhaps listening today, that are there right now. That's that's your address right now. You have not found rest for your soul yet in your life. Perhaps you might be thinking, I keep trying to fill the hole in my heart. I have tried so many things, and all I find is disappointment. I've tried so many different things to find satisfaction, true happiness, fill the hole in my heart, and everything has led to disappointment. Nothing I do works. I keep trying to be a good person, but I keep failing. I'm not content. I'm not happy. I don't have peace. And perhaps you're saying, deep down, I know I'm not right with God. My soul is not at rest. And Jesus says to you, come. Come and find rest in me. That's what Jesus says to all of us today. And so, in light of that, in light of the clues in our text... And in light of what the rest of the Bible says about this word rest, what can we deduce? What can we understand about this rest that Jesus is talking about? Well, in in my study, I've pretty much come across three different ways that Jesus gives us rest. Now, there might be more. I might not be exhausting all of the ways that Christ gives us rest here this morning, but I can give you three this morning from my own study, and hopefully you will find that these are biblical What kind of rest is this? Well, first, Jesus gives us rest in our souls from the troubles of this world. Jesus gives us rest in our souls from the troubles of this world. What happens when you turn on the television or when you go to a news website these days? I'll tell you what happens to me. I feel one of two things, discouragement or anger. That's almost all that I feel. Anytime I look at the news, anytime I look at what's happening in the world, because it seems like it's either all trouble or all animosity, right? Jesus gives us rest from the troubles of this world, but this world doesn't just have troubles that are out there. This world has troubles that are right here for every single one of us. Right? We know what trouble is, not just because we see it out in the world, but we experience it ourselves. Our loved ones are dying. So many are sick. We experience things like depression and heartache. We've got troubles. And I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure all of us can say right now, I've got troubles. We have troubles in this world, and Jesus promises us rest from them. John 16, one of the most encouraging verses in all the Bible, Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. We can take heart in Jesus, not because he takes us out of the world and out of the troubles, not because we get to escape all of them, but because he has overcome the world. He is above all of the troubles. We know because of Christ that they are temporary and that He has victory already over them all. The greatest trouble that there could be in this world, He defeated by resurrecting from the dead three days after He was killed. You will have trouble. Do not be surprised, Peter says in 1 Peter 4. You will have trouble. But take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. And so you come to Jesus and you find that kind of rest. You find rest from the troubles of this world. Troubles out there and troubles right here. Receive that word from Jesus today. You can have rest in your soul from the trouble of this world. But second, Jesus offers another kind of rest. He offers us an eternal rest He offers us not just rest now from the troubles of this world. He offers us eternal rest from all trouble. The book of Hebrews, over and over again, talks about eternity in heaven as God's promised rest. It's rest in God. When we get to heaven, when we finish fighting this good fight of the faith, and if we have held on to Christ, then when our day comes, we will finally experience rest. Rest, true and lasting rest. No more working for money, no more struggles, no more suffering, no more pain, no more injustice, no more enemies, and no more sin. No more sin out there. The better news for me is no more sin in here. Rest. The promised eternal rest for our souls. One day we can finally let go. I've said this a number of times, but church, I, I think church is, is really just a bunch of people getting together helping one another hold on to Jesus. We're helping one another to hold on. We're holding on. The world is pulling us away, trying to get us to let go. We're holding on as tight as we can, but we're helping one another to hold on until that final day when we can finally exhale for the last time and let go. And then we will have rest in Christ. Jesus offers eternal rest. But he offers a third kind of rest. And I think in this passage, this is the main type of rest that Jesus is talking about. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. I think he's mainly talking about this third type of rest, which is rest from working for your salvation and working for God's favor. If you come to Jesus, you can find rest from that. No more working for salvation. No more working for God's favor. You can just rest in the finished work of Christ. He said on the cross, when it was done, He said, It is finished. There's a lot more tied up in those three words than most of us understand. Finished. He had completed the work of salvation, He had offered full payment once for all for all of our sins. And so we don't have to pay for our sins ourselves. We don't have to work our way into God's grace. We don't have to be good enough to where He owes us anything, to where He owes us eternity because we bought it with our obedience. Now, that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is come to Jesus. And why don't you give all that up? Because it's never worked anyway. It doesn't work for any of us. We've tried it. A lot of us have really tried that. We've tried to earn God's love. We've tried to earn salvation by our obedience and our good works. And it doesn't work. It's impossible. You're you're in a hole that you can't dig yourself out of. And we all know it in our hearts. Even those who are in that lifestyle trying it as best they can. It's a never-ending hamster wheel. Right? It just doesn't stop and there's no way to have assurance of your salvation. Jesus says, Come to me and just give that up and have rest, true rest for your soul. Resting in the finished work of Christ, knowing that God loves you, not because of what you have done, but because of what He did. Knowing that you have forgiveness of your sins, not because you have earned it, but specifically because Jesus bought it for you by suffering on the cross. And God accepted the full payment that Jesus gave to Him on the cross. God's wrath has been taken care of in Christ. And any who come to Him can escape it. Any who come to Him can find rest. Any who come to Him can find the grace of God. It has often been said, there is nothing free in life except for the grace of God. Come to Jesus and find rest for your soul. And so that's the kind of rest that Jesus offers. But second question here from our text, I want to ask, what kind of yoke does Jesus place on us? Look at verse 29 with me where Jesus says... Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Take my yoke upon you. Now, what, what is that? What is a yoke? Well, just give you a little hint. He's not talking about eggs over easy. All right. When I was younger, I would read that and I had no idea what he was talking about. Why? Well, because this is a farming term. And specifically, it's, it's becoming more and more of an outdated farming term. What is a yoke? A yoke is a big frame that you would put over the heads, over the necks of an ox so it could pull a plow, or, or over horses so they could pull a cart or a carriage... Big, huge, heavy frame. You ever seen, seen Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves? You ever seen that movie? Right? They meet Friar Tuck, who is a, uh, a, a really uh, brash kind of dude in, in the very beginning of their meetings together. And he puts up a big fight. He doesn't want them to, to take the stuff that's in the cart that he's driving. Well, they end up hooking him up to the cart with the yoke, putting over his neck, and he has to pull it. Right? That's what a yoke is. The big, huge, heavy frame that you put over an ox or a horse, they have to pull something. They used to call horses and oxes like that, they used to call them beasts of burden, right? This is is my work horse, that's where we get that term. This is my work animal, they're going to pull for me. And so Jesus is saying, he's got a spiritual yoke, and you should take it upon yourself. Now some of you might be saying, why would I want to do that? Why would I want to take a heavy frame upon myself just so God can use me like an animal, like an ox or a mule? Why do I want to do that? Why do I want to take this heavy burden on myself and pull and pull and pull for the rest of my life? Don't get Jesus wrong here. Jesus is saying that's what you've been doing. That's what you've been doing your whole life. The heavy yoke, the heavy burden, that's what's been on you this whole time. You haven't been without a yoke, you've been with a different one. You've been pulling a plow, sweat dripping off your brow, and you feel like you're getting nowhere. Does this resonate with any of us here? After an hour's worth of hard work, you look back and you've moved six inches feels like you hit a rock every couple minutes. You just have to keep stopping. It's frustrating work. You're getting nowhere. You've had this yoke, this heavy burden on you your entire life. And Jesus says, why don't you take that one off and try this one on? And notice the difference. In Acts chapter 15, verse 10, Peter says... Therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? He's talking about the law. He's talking about the law, the Old Testament law. And he's saying, why are you going to go tell people that they need to be obedient enough to be saved or that they need to follow the law in order to win their salvation? Why are we still telling people this? Peter's saying this to to people around him in that day in Acts chapter 15. Why are we telling people this? He says, it's never worked. No one's ever been able to bear this. No one's ever been able to live up to this standard. We can't do it. We need another way. Jesus' yoke is different. Jesus says, why don't you take that one off and try this one on? Jesus' yoke is different. Look at what he says in verse 30. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is a yoke. That when you put it on, instead of loading you down, it lifts you up. Instead of wearing you out, it energizes you. In fact, it's a lot like a life jacket. Think about this for a moment. Think about somebody who is drowning, who for some reason has never heard of or seen a life jacket. They have no idea what that is, but they're drowning. And in a a quick moment of you being able to communicate to them from the boat, you say... I'm throwing you a life jacket, put it on. And they immediately think, why am I going to put something else on? I'm drowning. Why, Why do I need to be weighed down more? I need to be lifted up, not weighed down. I don't need to put something on. I need somebody to help me up. What they don't realize is that extra thing that you put on actually lifts you up instead of weighs you down, right? Jesus says, my yoke is like that. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And so instead of wearing you down, it energizes you. Instead of pulling you down, it lifts you up. Jesus says in verse 29, after he says, Take my yoke upon you, he says, learn from me. Jesus says, come learn from me. Yes, there is a yoke that you must put on if you want to follow Jesus. What we've got to realize, though, is you don't live life without one. It's not as if you don't have one, and then with Jesus you put one on. No, you've got one on one way or the other. The question is, do you want the heavy burden, or do you want one that's easy and light? That's the question. It's not that we're living without one, it's which one are we going to live with. Jesus says, come and learn from me. There is a yoke, yes, but he says it's an easy one. It's a joyful one. Let me tell you right now, those of us who are in Christ here, we are servants of God. Romans actually says we're slaves of God. And we love it. We love it. I'm a slave of God and I love it. It fills me up. It satisfies my heart. And I'm a slave. Think about this, right? Romans uses that language. Right? You go from being a slave to sin to being a slave to God. You're still a slave one way or the other. But we love it. We absolutely love serving God. It's a joyful yoke. Jesus calls us and says, come learn from me how to serve God. Come learn how to serve God from me. Come learn from me and I will show you how to find true happiness. Come learn from me and I will show you how to be truly content. Come learn from me and I will teach you how to have rest for your soul. And so this yoke that Jesus puts on us, it is a yoke. It is something to put on, but it is easy. It is light. It is unlike the one that we lived with before or the one that you may be living with now. Third and finally, let's ask this question. What kind of heart does Jesus have? What kind of heart does Jesus have? The Bible uses the word heart in a different way than we typically use it in our modern culture. When we talk about our hearts, we're usually talking about our emotions. Usually we say the heart and we mean emotions. Or uh, at, at the very most, we mean our desires, our inner desires, like Disney movies, follow your heart, you know. Um, So when we say heart, that's what we mean. But when the Bible says the word heart, anytime you see this in Scripture, it's different than the way we typically use it. When the Bible says heart, it's talking about the very core of someone's being. And included in that word heart in the Bible, included within that, is the mind, the will, and the spirit. They're all included in what the Bible calls our heart. The mind, too. The mind, the will, and the spirit all tied up in what the Bible calls our heart. It's the core of who we are. It's the motivational center of who we are. It's what gets you up in the morning. It's why you do what you do. Your very heart, right? That's someone's heart. Well, in verse 29, what does Jesus say about his heart? verse 29, he says... For I am gentle and lowly in heart. Gentle and lowly in heart. Charles Spurgeon once pointed out, and this is fascinating to me, out of the 89 chapters in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's 89 total chapters. Out of the 89 chapters in the Gospels, out of all the words that Jesus spoke, there is only one place where he describes his own heart. And it's right here. This is the only place in the Bible where Jesus describes what kind of heart he has. And what does he say about it? He says it's gentle and lowly. Now, if Jesus only spoke once about his very heart, if Jesus only spoke once about that, the core of his being, and this is what he chose to say, what does that tell us? That tells us this is central to who he is. That tells us everything else flows out of this right here. Jesus' heart is defined by these words gentle and lowly. It's the one place he uses to describe his own heart. And the thing he chooses to say about it is it's gentle and lowly. And so what that means for us is that we serve a Savior... We serve a Savior, we have a Savior, who is gentle with us and not harsh. As much as we want to sometimes convince ourselves that He is harsh with us, as much as we sometimes think that's what He's like, especially after we sin, He is gentle with us and not harsh. There's a wonderful verse in Matthew chapter 12 that Matthew attributes to Jesus, where Matthew says about Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Now, what's that mean? Well, think about a reed. Reeds are those things that grow up by, by water, right? You, you, back in Jesus' day especially, you'd go snap one off, you grab one, and you could use it for lots of different things. You could use it as a straight edge. Sometimes they would uh, do different things with them and make them into writing tools or musical instruments. You'd do lots of different things with them. But here's the deal. If you found one that was bad, or if you had one that got bruised, cracked, bent, whatever, what would you do? Well, there's plenty of those. Just go get another one. Throw the bad one out and go get another one. They're plentiful, they're cheap, right? So just throw your bad one out, go get another one. That's what I would expect Jesus to do with me. A lot of times in my life, that's what I have expected him to do. Throw throw that one out and let's go get somebody who is more effective. Throw him out, let's go get somebody who has less problems with sin. Throw him out, let's go get somebody who is better at obeying the commands. But that's not what he does. He does not throw away, break off a bruised reed. No, when he finds a bruised reed, he nurses it back to health and back to usefulness. He is patient and gentle with us. Same thing with a smoldering wick. When we think of a wick, we think of candles, right? Well, a good wick is one you light and it produces a a vibrant flame, right? A bad wick is one that you try to light and it it just kind of smolders. That's all it does, right? It doesn't really produce a flame. What do you do when you have a wick like that? Well, just cut off the bad part and go down to a part that's better or get a new one altogether. These things are cheap, right? Throw out the bad one. That's not what Jesus does with us. We're we're smoldering wicks. You might feel like my faith is not on fire. My faith is smoldering. My relationship with God is smoldering. Jesus is gentle and patient with us and works with us to bring us back to health, to bring us back to usefulness. But he does not snuff us out. He's gentle and lowly in heart. Think about this with me. What is Jesus' response to our sin? What is Jesus' response to our sin? Does He condemn us? Does He chastise us? Does He make us feel guilty? Does He express His disappointment? No. The way Jesus' responds to our sin is He suffers and dies to buy our forgiveness. That's how Jesus responded to sin. He suffers and dies to buy our forgiveness. He is gentle. He is compassionate. He's compassionate. A long time ago, a scholar of the Bible named B.B. Warfield wrote an essay called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. B.B. Warfield took the entire New Testament, he went through all the, the passages where Jesus was in it, and he looks at every single time Jesus showed an emotion of any kind. Whatever emotion it was, all of the times where he showed any kind of emotion, and he cataloged all of them, and then he came out with his findings. And he said the three most common emotions that Jesus displayed while he was on the earth were these. Third was joy. Jesus experienced a lot of joy. And so that's the third most common emotion that Jesus shows while he's walking the earth. Second, you might be surprised, was righteous anger. Or indignation. The second most common emotion that Christ showed while he was on the earth. Righteous anger. But first, first by an overwhelming majority, was compassion. The most common emotion that Jesus displayed, experienced, if you will, while he was on this earth was compassion for others. He is understanding He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. He's able to sympathize and able to deal gently with us because He Himself experienced our weaknesses. The book of Hebrews talks about this. We do not serve a God up in heaven where we we pray to Him when we need Him, but behind it all, we're really just thinking, yeah, but you don't understand. You're perfect. You're God. You're, you're up in heaven. You're powerful. And you don't know what I'm going through. You might care about me, but you don't really know. We don't serve a God like that. Jesus became one of us and experienced all of our humanity and all of our temptations and all of our weaknesses. And so he is able to deal gently with us because of that. He's able to sympathize with us because of that. He's compassionate. He's gentle. But it says not just gentle, he is lowly in heart. Lowly. What does that mean? It means we have a savior, a savior who is humble and meek, not one who is prideful. Even though he has every reason to be, we serve a Savior who is humble and meek, not prideful. We see it in the way he arrived on this earth. The king of the entire universe could have come with great fanfare and announcement. When he comes the second time, he will, by the way. But the first time he came, how did he come? In obscurity, hidden, born in a barn, to, by all accounts, a teenage mother who was probably not ready for any of this, and her, her, her husband, who's a carpenter by trade. No one knows about his birth except for a few local shepherds who were right there and whatever animals were there. We see it in the way that he laid aside his glory to become a human being. Paul says in Philippians, he emptied himself, taking the very nature of a servant. Right? He came to serve, not to be served. The ruler of the entire universe with the most glory of anyone who could have ever existed came to this earth and did the things no one else wanted to do. He served others in ways that other people thought demeaning. When he walked this earth, those he identified with most were the outcasts, the broken, the oppressed. Those are the ones he, he identified with the most. Those are the ones he felt like he had the most in common with. He's not only gentle, he is lowly. He was poor. He was homeless at times. He was of no worldly importance, especially before he started his ministry. This is Jesus' heart. What kind of heart does he have? Gentle and lowly. That is his essence. That is the very core of his being. Never forget that. The Jesus who says, come to me, is a Jesus who is gentle and lowly in heart. This is the Jesus that tells us that he will give us rest I want to end by focusing on that very first phrase that he said in verse 28. Where he said, come to me. Come to me all. All who labor. All who are heavy laden. Jesus is saying this to you this morning. He says, come to me. Every single one of us needs to hear this this morning. Even those of us who have been Christians for many years. Jesus says, even to Christians, come to me. We still need to hear that. We will never stop needing to come to Jesus. Those of us who are walking with Christ, we will never stop needing to come to him every day for his grace, for his mercy, for his rest. We will never stop needing to come to him. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And so today, I need to come to Jesus for enough grace and mercy to face today. And then tomorrow, I'm going to need to get up and do it all over again. Come back to Him again tomorrow for enough grace and mercy to face that day. Why? Because His mercies are new every morning. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Each day, Jesus will give you enough to face that day. We've got to continue to come to him, brothers and sisters. This is not a one-time deal. This is not come to him and you never have to come to him again. No, you've got to come back to the well over and over and over again. It's like eating food. It's kind of amazing when you stop to think, I'm never going to be able to stop eating until it's time for me to die. I've got to eat a lot for the rest of my life, right? You've got to come back again and again and again And again, to Jesus. But like we talked about before, there's two groups of people in here this morning. There are those of us who have come to Jesus for this rest. And there are those of us who have yet to come to Jesus for this rest. This is a rest that some know and others do not. And so if you're in Christ today, you know this rest and you have access to this rest. But if you have never come to Christ before, do you not long for this? You don't want to lay your burden down. Just lay it down and come to Jesus. Take off that heavy yoke that you have carried. Come to Jesus and receive His. Experience what it feels like to have true satisfaction and rest for your soul. Because out there, the only thing that is there is unrest. Unrest of soul. Don't you want to come lay your burden Down at the foot of the cross. We're going to spend some time in prayer right now, praying over what we just heard, responding to God from what we've just heard. As we pray together, this is a time to speak to God. God just spoke to us, and now we come back and we speak to Him. We're going to have a few moments where we pray silently. Laura, would you mind playing just a little bit as we do this? And as we pray silently, coming to God, we will come back after a few moments of praying, and then we'll have a time for those who need to respond publicly to do so. So let's pray right now together.